<clears throat> okay, here we are again. The Book of Ecclesiastes. And I hope that you have been um, enjoying this journey as much as I have. Um, I, I have been enjoying it. It's It's been really good. Um, it's time to again address something that uh, came up uh, early on, and that is, um, where is the gospel in Ecclesiastes? Where do we see the gospel? And we know that every book of the Old Testament um, has something of the gospel in it, because Jesus said so. <clears throat> You'll recall that when he spoke to the men uh, on the road uh, about himself, he said that every uh, book, and of course there was only the Old Testament at that time when he said that, in Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. <clears throat> and the Psalms were part of the wisdom collection. So many Jews at that time would say Psalms uh, and mean the whole uh, collection of five wisdom books, uh, of which Psalms was one, <clears throat> and Ecclesiastes. So we we are justified in making the argument that he included Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> so where is the gospel? Um, I mentioned earlier that the, the Scottish preachers of the 1700s made a pretty good um, attempt, at least, to draw out the gospel from chapter 9, <clears throat> and especially verses 1 through 7 of chapter 9. And you do see some elements, for sure. For example, verse 2, uh, for the unclean and for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not offer a sacrifice. In other words, <clears throat> the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, he's mentioning sacrifices, which <clears throat> in the Old Testament uh, economy, uh, was the uh, sacrifices for sin, payment for sin. And, of course, the really faithful um, Old Testament believers, including David, uh, <clears throat> knew, <clears throat> excuse me, knew that sacrifices weren't in and of themselves, uh, the sacrifices of animals weren't in and of themselves, as Hebrews will, will say later, uh, efficacious. They weren't powerful enough to take away sin. They only kind of pushed it back, kind of pushed it to the side. Um, and so um, you definitely see one element of the gospel in chapter 9. <clears throat> now I want to, I want to um, at the end of this study, I want to come back to that. Well, I want to come back to the subject of, of the gospel in Ecclesiastes and in the Old Testament in general. <clears throat> but for now, let me just give you some reminders. Flip over to Galatians, the book of Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 3, there's a very interesting verse. In fact, it is, uh, it is marvelous and remarkable and, and stupendous. It's a really amazing verse. In Galatians chapter 3, <clears throat> and let's start with verse 6. Uh, Galatians 3, 6. <clears throat> Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of the faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. Now, what does it say there in the middle of that verse? Preached, uh, verse 8, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham? Abraham heard the gospel. Now, we don't know if the last part of that verse, all the nations shall be blessed in you, you know, is is a summary of what, you know, the, the, the writer Paul is saying the gospel uh, looked like to Abraham, or just a hint, or if we have to go back to Genesis and see all the things that God did say, and of course God did say, you know, you're going to be you're going to be the father of, of many and the father of nations and all the world be, will be blessed. Well, however you slice that, Abraham heard the gospel. Abraham heard the gospel. Now, here's the question. Could Abraham articulate it in the terms that we know it today? 
Not likely. Not likely. Uh, the name Jesus Christ or Yeshua, Messiah, Messiah was probably, uh, you know, not on his mind. So, you know, he we wouldn't recognize his explanation of the gospel probably. But he got it. He got it. In fact, really, uh, the first family, Adam and Eve, got it. We know that because uh, by implication, in the, in the early part of Genesis, <clears throat> by implication we see that they taught their sons the whole sacrifice system. We know that from Cain and, and Abel uh, offering, offering uh, sacrifices. Speaking of Genesis, it is interesting to note, it is interesting to note that um, some people regard Genesis, the whole book of Genesis, as being full of the gospel. Uh, many uh, old-time teachers did. J. Vernon McGee, for example. Um, and what they would say is the gospel began in chapter 3 of Genesis. And, of course, it's a, it's a famous verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And that, uh, many theologians regard as the, um, I'm not sure how to, it's a Latin word, I'm not sure how to say it, but basically the origin or the first uh, instance of the gospel. Evangela something, I, I don't remember how it's said. And here's the interesting thing. You also see the gospel come up in almost the very end of Genesis. That's chapter 49. And what we have in chapter 49, verse 10, is mention of Shiloh, until Shiloh comes. And um, giving us, therefore, brackets from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Genesis. So really, all of Genesis uh, contains uh, the gospel. Now, if you want to get technical about it, there's a really interesting way to look at that again, and that is you have chapters 1 through 11 being kind of one theme in Genesis, and then chapters 12 through 50 being another kind of thing. That's a very common division in, in Bible study, that, you, that, that Genesis is divided in those two parts. Because what happens is Genesis 1 through 11 is pretty much a focus on individuals, really individuals, and then chapter 12 begins with really focusing on one nation. So we have 11 chapters about individuals, and then we have uh, 39 chapters focusing on a nation, and of course the nation is, is Israel which, you know, what would become Israel, nation of the Jews, Hebrews. But here's the interesting thing. Those first 11 chapters cover, depending on how you, how you figure it, between 2,000 and 3,000 years. Chapters 1 through 11 cover about 3,000 years, which is about 300 years per chapter, a very fast rate, really just zooming through time. But then it all changes in chapter 12, because in chapter 12, it slows down. 39 chapters cover only 300 years. So now you're talking about 10 years a chapter, um, give or take. And so at chapter 12, the whole narrative has slowed down to, you know, a fraction of the speed that it was in chapters 1 through 11, showing once again that the point of Genesis is to reveal the coming Messiah, which is a very fascinating thing. Again, we're just going to touch the surface here, scratch the surface, but let me, let's go over, go over to John for a minute. And we're just making a case for the fact that there is no disconnect, okay? There is no disconnect between the Old Testament and the New Testament when it comes to uh, the Gospel. Let me show you something else that's very interesting. People don't like this. Even, even many Christians... Uh, push back against this. But this is a very interesting verse. Over in chapter uh, 5 of the Gospel of John, almost at the very end of the, of the, of the uh, uh, chapter, start with uh, verse 44, John 5, 
44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Do you hear what he's saying? Not only was Moses writing about the Christ, the Messiah, but look how many times the word believe is used in this passage. I think it's five times. Moses, Jesus is saying, was a Christian. Moses was a Christian. Again, that offends many, especially dispensationalists and those who uh, want to get, you know, very technical and say, well, you know, the church didn't start till Pentecost. Well, in the broadest, you know, most most relaxed view of believers, Old Testament versus New Testament, and, and do they have the same gospel and so forth, you have to say, well, the gospel's always been there. And the church has always been there in the Bible from the very beginning. It's always it's always existed. In other words, when we're in heaven, we see Adam. He's one of us. He's he believes the same thing that we do. So you can see how that works. Um. So I just wanted to just wanted to cover that and and, and look at that, and we'll come back to that. Uh, as I say again at the end of the study, and um. Um. Let me let me let me uh, refer you to one more verse. Let's go over to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter one, Ephesians chapter one, and let's read verse ten, Ephesians one, verse ten, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In other words, all of history. Not only did, did history begin with Christ and the significance of the gospel, uh, all recorded history and, 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 and before. Um, I mean, in the book of Acts, it says, from the foundation of the world. But here in Ephesians, not only did the did the world begin, uh, the world's going to end with Christ. You know, the known the known history, known history of man, is is going to more than just end. It's going to culminate. All of history will sum up. All of history will will culminate in Jesus Christ. Okay, so what did we do last time? We um, we uh, went through chapter 3, as I recall, and we got to, I think, 15, 3.15. So we saw the first half of chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and then we looked at the second half, part of the second half of chapter 3, verses 9 through 15, and we saw a couple things going on there. <clears throat> but just to quickly review, by the time we were done with verse 15, of chapter 3, we had the seven pieces of uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes' riddle, his riddle, uh, his conundrum, his paradox, his, um, his um, you know, his challenge, his, his, his quest to um, um, explain what God has done um, in making life uh, as inequitable and as inhospitable as it is. Of course, the fall started that, but we know from Romans 8.20 that God actually turned that uh, in his favor he, and for his purpose. He turned it into something a little bit more than just uh, corruption. He actually made it into a, an apologetic. He made it into an evangelistic uh, situation. And we saw the seven pieces, um, which uh, are the are the seven ingredients uh, of the of the riddle or of the of the conundrum, and these pieces are uh, life is broken. Number one, life is broken, and we see that from the first fifteen verses of the book, chapter one, verse one through verse fifteen. 
a big chunk of it is one through eleven, but he actually extends it into into fifteen by the time we're by the time we're done with that particular point. And that first point is life is broken. Life is broken. And you can see even in verse fifteen, the third word in that verse is what is crooked. What is crooked? So the writer is saying, yeah, there's there's something missing. There's something not quite right about the human condition. And then the second piece is in that same verse, because he goes on in verse 15 of chapter 1, he says, cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. He's saying that his observation and his meditation on this situation made him conclude that it's not fixable. Man, at least, cannot fix his own environment, his own harsh and hospitable environment. So that was the second piece. First piece, life is broken. Second piece, it's unfixable. The third piece we get at the very end of chapter 1, where he says, Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Now that sounds like a really, you know, existential kind of, you know, you know, someone giving up on life and, and being negative about life and and saying, you know, Knowledge just hurts. No, that's not what he's saying. As with everything, you have to take this in context. So at the very end of his his uh, thesis abstract, which is there's something wrong with life, he's saying that not only is life broken, and not only is it unfixable, but point three, which occurs in verse 18, is attempts to fix it frustrate. Attempts to unravel, attempts to decode life, just lead to frustration. So then in, ver in chapter 2, we know that uh, he looks back in his own life. From verses 1 through 23, he's looking back in his own life, and he's saying, you know, uh, I can see that I didn't know it at the time, but I look back on it, and I see that what I was doing was trying to find a loophole. I was trying to find the, the trap door in life by all the things I pursued, and really, none of it helped. None of it gave me the, the answer, and not only that, but really all it did was fuel the, the dichotomy, the tension between an immobile, um, unimpressionable, creation in which man just appears for a little while then disappears like the vapor that he is and and which the rest of the Bible explains that he is. He says those are very frustrating. And so then in verse 24 of chapter 2 he, he turns a corner and he says you know I believe now <clears throat> that the proper response, even though I know this heavy, heavy thing, this heavy, this heavy principle about life, even though I'm convinced of it, I know now that the proper response is to let God have His way. Let Him have what He's done. Let Him give Him the right uh, and recognize that He is God and I am not. And He says that in, in verse 24 and really through, through verse 26 at the end of uh, chapter 2. So then he's going to take that, and he's going to springboard from that in chapter 3, and he's going to say more about God. In fact, the whole uh, first half of chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, are just that. He's just, he's just explaining God's godness. He's just celebrating. He's, he's, he's enumerating. He's... Um, He's, he's definitely emphasizing the fact that God did this thing and that we need to give him the right, and that we need to give them right that in chapter 3 because he's God. Because he's God. And what we find in the first eight verses of chapter 3 is uh, point number four in the riddle, and that is that God orchestrates life. God orchestrates life. Not only did he make life the way it is as an evangelical tool to, to, to cause us to think of him, but he orchestrates every single moment of life. And that really is the point of chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. 
And then we uh, come over to verse 9. I'm sorry, did I say chapter 8? I meant chapter 3. And we get over to verse 9 of uh, chapter 3, and he the narrative shifts a little bit, because now what he's doing is he's saying, this is the outcome, this is the reason, this is the goal of what God has done in making life the way it is. So from 9 to 15, he's explaining that. And the first thing we find is, uh, we're going to jump around a little bit in this section, but let's jump down to verse 11. And what he says there, he has made everything appropriate in its time. He's also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning to the end. A couple things there. One is that, that appropriate or perfect in verse 11. In other words, God did not make a mistake. God did this in wisdom. But in the middle of that verse, man cannot find out the work which God has done. That is a bombshell. The writer of Ecclesiastes is saying not only is life broken, not only is life unfixable, and attempts to frustrate, and God orchestrates, but now he's saying God has blocked. God has blocked man's unraveling this conundrum, this riddle. Man has blocked it. Uh, I mean, God has blocked it. And then if we if we go up one verse, so we're kind of, like I say, we're jumping around. Go up to verse 10, and verse 10 is, a, is really full of interesting things, as short as it is. Verse 10, I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. Look at those words, task and given and occupy. The writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, especially that word occupy, we saw in, in the next verse, verse 11, that... Uh, um, point number five that God has blocked man from fixing his own environment in terms of its harshness and uh, inhospitality but verse 10 tells us that yet he has made man want to he has compelled man he's compelled man the task, verse 10, which God has given to occupy himself. Now, I remember mentioning last time that we went through this that there's actually a hint of that in chapter 1. If you flip back to chapter 1, near the end of, the, of verse 13, actually at the very end of verse 13, it says, God has given to the sons of men to be, well, let's back up, the task, the grievous, which means evil, by the way, in the, in the language, the grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. So God has made it un impossible to unravel, and yet at the same time, here's the irony, at the same time God has made it so that we want to unravel it. We are compelled to unravel it. And that's the sixth piece. So one, life is broken. Two, it is unfixable. Three, attempts frustrate. Four, God orchestrates. Five, God has blocked us from fixing it. And six, he's made us want to fix it. He's built that into man to fix this problem. And then finally, as I said, 9 through 15, explain the outcome, the goal. And we find that in verse 14 of chapter 3. I know that everything God had does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take away from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. Let's read that the last part again. God has so worked that men should fear him. This is, this is piece number seven of the riddle. And the writer of, Solomon, of, of uh, Ecclesiastes is saying, the reason God did this was to draw men, to draw men to himself. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? So the writer of Ecclesiastes, has, this, is, this is his thesis. He's now explained his thesis. And what he's going to do from now on is he's going to talk about, um, he's really, he'll, he'll bring up points of the thesis as we go through the book, but he's now really going to address what we do with it. 
what should you do with this thing? What should it make you do or believe or how should you act? What's your response, in other words? And that's what we'll, um, we'll, we'll carry on with uh, today. Now, before we get going, um, I need to point out that we've got these seven pieces of the riddle. But notice, will you, there's no solution mentioned in this riddle. These seven pieces do not contain a solution. So in that sense, it's not a riddle the way we think, think of riddles today, like a, you buy a puzzle at the store and you're putting the puzzle together. Or you're on a game show and you get you know $10,000 if you answer this question properly. That's not what this is. When we say riddle, we mean, we mean a paradox. We mean, we mean a, a mystery, a conundrum. Conundrum might be a better word, uh, after all. So there's no there's no solution. In other words, in other words, as Christians, we don't have a get out of jail ticket. I mean, we do have an advantage, and that is because, as Romans eight says, we know that life is broken, but we have a hope in another life. We won't always live in this life that's antagonistic toward us. We won't always live in a life that eats up man and spits him out. We won't always be in this world. And so we have, a, we have an advantage. And in fact, the writer of Ecclesiastes is going to come back to that point, that we have an advantage, a couple more times in the book. But we do have it. We do have it. But here's the, here's the, here's the uh, inescapable fact, and that is the harshness of life, the code that we would like to unlock it is not able to be unlocked even for a Christian. Both believers and unbelievers are still living in a world that is hostile to them. And just knowing that, and just being a believer, well, being a believer is a wonderful thing, there's nothing, nothing just about it, but, but even being in God's family, um, it's st- the, 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 the riddle is still there, it still exists, and it's still locked for us. It's just that we have the knowledge and the hope and, and citizenship. As the Bible says many times, our citizenship is in heaven, not here on earth. So we're, we definitely have an advantage. And even the writer of Ecclesiastes uh, will point it out as we get going. Now, huh, along those lines, I want to bring up something else before we jump into... Um, the next piece of Ecclesiastes, which is the teacher's complaint. The teacher's complaint. I want to I go look at something else uh, for a quick moment. And um, in, along the same lines of, you know, a Christian has an advantage, a believer has an advantage in the fact that he really isn't of this world. He's of another world. Um, I want to show you something else. Over in chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8, verse 16. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover and though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. What's he saying? What's he saying? He's saying, even to believers, as I pointed out, some, some mysteries we will never know. Some mysteries will remain mysteries. We, we can't unlock them. Here's another one. Back up uh, one chapter, over to chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes. And he says it another way. He says a very similar thing. Over to chapter 7, verse 23. I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. What has been, what has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? And here he's saying almost the same thing, but a different way. Now he's saying, this world will never make sense. This world will never make sense. And we have to accept that. All right. So, 
we left off at verse 15 of chapter 3, and now we're going to do uh, chapter 3, 16 through 22, which is to the end of the chapter. And the this piece that we're going into now is called the teacher's complaint. And what the teacher's complaint is, is basically he's playing devil's advocate. He's raising objections and then addressing the objections. He doesn't address them really, really completely, but he does it. He does address them. I think he's more interested in bringing up the objections and showing that um, he knows that people are going to say this. Now, this is one of the things that have turned people away, turned people off from the book of Ecclesiastes. And that is that it looks like the teacher himself is saying these things. He's not saying these things. Even though there's no paragraph break in verse 16 of chapter 3, there should be. Because what he's doing from 3.16 through 4.16 is he's bringing up two objections. Two objections. And those objections are, uh, the first, I'm going to list these in a very vernacular way. The first one is, um, God, um, there seems to be something wrong with the way you treat the righteous versus the unrighteous. Are you being unfair? Where's the fairness? Okay, that's number one. And that's actually from 16 through 22 of chapter 3. And then the next objection, that is, you know, a hypothetical person is supposed to be asking, is all of chapter 4. And that is, uh, God... Uh, this world is so bad, I have to wonder, are you even there? Do you even exist? Is there really a God? Chapter 4 is asking, essentially. So let's, uh, let's see how that works. And let's, read, uh, begin, let's, read, let's begin by reading uh, 16 through 22. Chapter 3. Furthermore, I have seen unto the Son that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man, for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. I said to myself concerning the sons of man, God has surely tested them in order the, for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place, all came from the dust and all returned to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast ascends downward to the earth? And I have seen that nothing is better for man, that he should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot, for who will bring him to see what will occur after him? He's saying, God, I look out, and I see in the world so much injustice and inequity, uh, particularly the, the inequity in terms of, Lord, are you treating the righteous and the unrighteous the same? Aren't you making a difference between people who believe and, and love you and trust you versus those who don't? It doesn't look like you are. And this should be familiar to you. The, the, the hypothetical person who's making this argument is really saying the same thing that Asaph said in Psalm 73. And Asaph used much of the same language even. Even the word beast, he even used that in the same way. And we'll, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll go over that in a minute. Um, but he's saying, from where, from where I sit, it doesn't look like you're running the world the way I would run it. He's basically saying, God, did you make a mistake? Did you make a mistake? In fact, the writer of Ecclesiastes uses that word in chapter 5. In chapter 5. He says, um, chapter 5, verse 6, Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. He's saying, God, or he, the hypothetical person is saying back to the writer of Ecclesiastes, He's saying, okay, you've, you've told me that I have to be content and I have to accept what God has done and you've made a case for how God-like God is and you've given me the reason for what he did, but I look around and I don't see evidence of God. I look around and I don't see that God is doing things right. 
That's what that's what this passage is saying. That's what he's saying. Notice verse 18 um, that the writer of Ecclesiastes is actually giving an answer to the objection. He says, actually in verse 17, starting with 17, I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. Do you see that? The writer of Ecclesiastes is giving in the answer. He's, he's saying to the hypothetical person, he's saying, well, it may not look like God is doing much to us to make a difference, a distinction between the one who believes and the one who doesn't, the, the good man and the, and the evil man, but God's keeping a record. God's keeping score. And then verse 18, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. So the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying back to the hypothetical arguer, God is just giving man the freedom. That's why they look so much alike. That's why you can't tell, you know, that there's much of a difference in, in the life, and especially in the end of the life, of a person who believes versus one who doesn't. He says God is just giving everyone the freedom to show what they really are and discover for themselves what they really are. That they are but beasts, it says. And then the hypothetical person is supposed to be going on, you know, con continuing in verse 19, where he says, yeah, but, he says, but their lives look the same, and they die the same. Can you prove to me that at death, one spirit goes to God, and the other spirit just, just goes in the ground, or whatever? And, um... That's a difficult question, and it's one that's actually very modern, isn't it? Atheists and whatnot, they, they, they use this sort, of, this sort of argument. Well, <clears throat> we don't get a really clear answer from the writer of Ecclesiastes, but we do get the feeling as we read the whole context, eight through, eight, verses 18 through 22, where the arguer has said, yeah, well, you know, visually you, you can't, you can't, prove that there's a heaven and people are going there believers are going there when they die and the other people are not it looks like all the same to me just like animals they die and they're done they're gone well the the writer of ecclesiastes does uh, say something look at verse 21 who knows he says <clears throat> and then in verse 22 I have seen nothing better for man that he should be happy in his activities, for this is his lot. He's saying you need to have faith, you need to be content. Now, he will address this second question, this, uh, I'm sorry, this first question, a little, bit, a little bit more clearly, way at the end of the book. Way at the end of the book. In chapter 12, in chapter 12, he's describing the end of life, the end of a life for an individual and how it, it, it ebbs and then goes. And in verse 7 of chapter 12, he says, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Now, there's two significant things about that verse. <clears throat> the first one is, it is a type of answer for this first uh, objection, that um, God is going to make a distinction. God does have a different plan for the believer than he does for the unbeliever. But the second significant thing about it is, it proves, if you needed proof, it proves that in chapter 3, that we're reading here from 16 through 22, that this is a hypothetical argument. This is not the writer himself making this argument, making this objection. Because we just saw in chapter 12 that he does believe there's a difference between the spirit of man and the spirit of an animal. Okay? That's very important. That is very, very important. All right, well, let's read um, chapter 4. It's a long chapter. I mean, it's not a long chapter. It's 16 verses, but it will <clears throat> be a, a, a bit of a long read. So here we go. Then I looked again. This is the second argument. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressor was power, but they had no one to comfort. 
So I congratulated the dead who were already dead more than the living who were living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen this evil activity that is done under the sun. And I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is a result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after win. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after win. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, For whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity and is a grievous task. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. But if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I have seen all the living under the sun thronged to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to who, uh, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later. They will not be happy with him, for this too is vanity and striving after win. That is quite a chapter. And it is the second, uh, the second objection that the writer of Ecclesiastes brings up as a hypothetical. And, and he will uh, not, not very clearly answer it, but he, he does raise the objection. He does acknowledge it. Um, and what he's saying there in this second objection, as I mentioned earlier, that there is so much nastiness in the world. There is so much injustice. There's so much oppression and, and man getting over man and man abusing another person, you know, person to person, that how can you even believe in a God? Now, isn't that a modern argument? It is. How can you even believe in a God, the, the hypothetical person is saying, when all this bad stuff is happening? How can, that, how can it be? In fact, he goes on to say in verse 2 that death seems better than life and that a miscarriage is better, uh, you know, someone who's not even been born is better than uh, one who is. And then verse 4, rivalry, competition, dog eat dog. And then, he, and then, and then, this hypothetical uh, arguer says something very interesting. He says something very interesting. And it could be, you could, at verse 5, you could even say that, that the writer interjects his own thought right here. And that's very likely, because he'll, he'll actually do this later. He'll say the same thing later. Here it is, verse 5. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh, one handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. The writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, some people respond to how hard life is, man abusing man, dog eat dog, and they will pull back from life. Folding his hands, verse 5, folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. They will pull back, they will disconnect, they will disengage from life and try to live life small. Live life as, as small and as retracted as possible to try to avoid the harshness and the meanness of life. And verse 6, one handful of rest is better than two fistful labor. He says, having little and being safe is better than having much and being in danger. And that is a little bit of a commentary on the part of the writer of Ecclesiastes. He's saying some people, some people respond that way. But he doesn't expand on that until much later. We'll see much later that he will uh, actually um, uh, uh, flesh this out more and say what's wrong with that. He'll actually say there's, there's something wrong with that approach or that response. But he doesn't say it here. By the way, that expression, folding hands, that is found only three times in the Bible. In the whole Bible, three times it says that. And both of the other two times, this is one, and the other two 
are both in Proverbs. In Proverbs. Very same phrase. So living small, we see from verses 5 and 6, the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying some people will respond by living small, purposely living small in retracted lives in order to avoid the battle. Living small is better than the battle. We're going to skip, as far as uh, exegesis goes, we're going to skip uh, verses 7 through 12 because we're going to come back to that later in another context. And uh, you'll see why when we get there. But now let's jump over to 13. And so we have 13 through 16. And that's a very interesting passage. And it's been interpreted in a lot of different ways. But I think what we have here is just simply this. The hypothetical arguer, again, the writer of Ecclesiastes, is bringing up objections. And this is the second objection, which is basically, you know, God seems absent. God doesn't even, you know, I mean, does he even exist? You know, are you there? Hello, God? That's what he's saying in all of chapter 4. And in this particular section, 13 and forward, he's basically saying, and here's something else I've noticed. Here's something else I've noticed. He says, there's a lot of stupid people in the world. Why are there so many stupid people in the world? <laughs> in other words, wisdom is rare. The, the, the objectioner is saying, wisdom is rare. Okay? A poor yet wise lad is better than, verse verse 13, a poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. He says some people never learn. Some people don't get smarter with age. They just stay, stay stupid. Why don't people get smarter with age? And that's really the rest of the, of the chapter, 14, 15, and 16. He said, why don't people get smarter with age? Why don't people get smarter when they have opportunities to do so? How can someone who had a humble beginning and then got a position of authority and power, how didn't, how didn't wisdom come along with that? Why didn't, why didn't he become a wise person? <clears throat> Many commentators think that the writer, who the majority of Bible teachers believe is Solomon, that he might have been talking about his own son, Rehoboam, who, of course, was born with a spoon in his, you know, silver spoon in his mouth, and had all that you know he could ever have wanted, and he ended up he he turned out you know he exhibited the, the fact that he was not a very bright individual, not a very smart lad, uh, and that that's a very sad commentary. But that's what's going on there. That's what's going on there. Um, these two arguments, and again they're not really dealt with very well, uh, very very satisfactorily you know very satisfyingly, but these are the arguments that uh, the writer brings up that he knows people are thinking. And maybe he, maybe he, they were among the arguments he had a, a, his own self at one time. And he brings them up and he says, yeah, these are, these are arguments people make uh, to what I've just said, you know, that God is sovereign and God is doing this on purpose and God is wise and we must accept it. And then we have these two arguments and he, he, uh, he does bring them up. He does bring them up. It reminds you of some things. Let's jump over to chapter 8. And I want to quote another, a verse to you that I've already quoted a couple times over in chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Look at verse 12. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well with those who fear God and who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. What's he saying? He's saying God sees. God knows these things. God is doing what he's doing, and even though there are times, and even though there are portions of it that don't look right to us, God knows what he's doing. Remember what it said back in chapter 3? That God did these things perfectly. Perfectly and wisely. Okay, so that was a that was a rush through uh, that section, uh, the teacher's complaint, um, and uh, hopefully that will uh, make sense for you. The next thing we'll do in the next uh, lesson is we're going to jump into, um, as I said, 
the writer of Ecclesiastes is no longer trying to make his case. Um, from chapter 5 onward, he's going to basically tell us how to live. It's basically a sermon, dare I say. Dare I use the word sermon? Because <laughs> this, this is a long sermon. Uh, and not many of us are used to that. So we'll take it in little chunks. Little chunks. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's a long sermon. And it's a sermon on how to live, you know, as, as Francis Schaeffer uh, said, thus how should we live? How should we, how should we therefore live? And that's what, that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is doing from chapter 5 onward. He's, he's made his case. He's, he's, he's given his thesis. He's even brought up what he thinks are, are common arguments. Uh, and now he's going to forge ahead and move forward and just explain what this means in our lives. What this principle, this riddle, this conundrum and its, and its uh, reason, which he gave at the end of chapter th uh, 3, uh, or, I'm sorry, 9 through 15, the middle of chapter 3, uh, th the reason for the conundrum, what, how it should affect our lives. How should we live? And it is a great sermon. A great sermon. In fact, let me give you a little teaser about uh, the sermon, or what I'm calling uh, the teacher's advice. The teacher's advice. Um, you could title this sermon, although it's a long and, and has many parts to it. We're going to break it down. You could entitle it, though, you could entitle it this. In the face of iniquity, I'm sorry, inequity. In the face of inequity, cling to God. That's it. From 5 through the end of 11, pretty much. He's going to give us advice, piece by piece, very, very, um, very articulate and very specific advice on how to live in a world of inequity in such a way that we honor and cling to God. That's it. So I think it's, it's going to be an interesting, uh, interesting uh, session, and I hope that you're, um, you'll, you'll be interested and, and will benefit from it. Until then, uh, take care and, and believe God.